so we can send you some information about us. On the other side of that, it's of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's Word. So we've been working our way through this series. We've been trying to take a look at passages of Scripture that focus on uh, who, who, who the church is, how it ought to operate, uh, because it's undeniable that we live in an age in which everything, particularly outside the church and sometimes inside the church, wants to pull us apart from one another, wants to divide us, set up partitions and walls that would segment us off and quarantine us. But as we look at this issue of unity in the life of any church body, little c, gathering, and big c, church, as a global church, we have to come to an understanding of our identity, of who we are as the church. And the reason identity is so important to unity is because it's only through our identity that we discover our purpose. Right? It's, only, it's not until we know who we are that we can determine why we're here and what we ought to be doing. And so identity is crucial to purpose. Right? Because a shared purpose forges unity. Because whenever you're all pushing the ball in the same direction, working toward the same end, moving toward the same goals, with the same purpose, it tends to galvanize people together. And so identity is crucial because identity informs purpose and purpose forges unity. And so this morning and, to, and next Sunday morning, we're going to take a look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 to understand what Peter says we are as the church. He gives four designations in this text that are each rooted in Old Testament descriptions of the nation of Israel that he pulls forward and applies to the church. We'll take a look at two of them this morning and two of them next week. But we want to start and just follow them in order the way that Peter writes them. And so we'll state this first and foremost. Who are we as a church? Peter says this, that the church is a chosen race. The church is a chosen race. Now the word race in the text, it literally means a family or a kind or a group. Right? So what Peter is saying is this, that the church is a new kind or a new race or a new family or a new people from all the kinds, all the races, all the families, and all the peoples of the earth. Right? It's a new kind made up of all kinds. A new people made up of all peoples. It's a new family made up of people from all different types of families. And this has been God's intention from the very beginning. Listen, in Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents rebel in order to be like God and sin enters into the world, it begins to unravel God's good creation. So that by Genesis 6, the world had grown so evil that God judges it with a flood. Okay, you got Noah building the ark and the animals loading on. The flood waters pour down upon the face of the earth and they emerge out of those flood waters. And by Genesis 11, listen, humanity has become so fixated on making a name for itself as it constructs this tower of Babel that God says we've got to confuse their languages and scatter them amongst the earth. 
So God confuses their languages, scatters them across the face of the globe, and as He does, what you have there is you begin to have the emergence of new languages that led to the emergence of new cultures, that led to the emergence of new tribes and new peoples and new nations. Subsequent to Genesis chapter 11, and yet, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham, and He calls him. And He tells Abraham that he and his offspring, through this nation that would emerge from them, that He would bless all the peoples of the earth, all the tribes, all the nations, all the families that had been scattered to the ends of the earth, He was going to bless through Abraham and his offspring. And as redemptive history unfolds, church, you see this promise that God makes to Abraham predicted and prophesied in other places in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah chapter 19, verses 22 to 25, where we see Isaiah write these words, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt in Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance." What's he describing? He's saying Egypt to the south, Assyria to the north, and Israel situated right between them. He's predicting and prophesying a day in which there would be a highway that would run from Egypt to Assyria, from Assyria to Egypt, through Israel. The Assyrians and Egyptians are worshiping together with the Israelites. These peoples from different nations and tribes and tongues are being brought back together into one people. And this church becomes a reality through Jesus Christ. We saw last week in Ephesians 2 that in Jesus, God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that separated every category of humanity. Because we said last week, there were Jews and there were everyone else. Okay, Jews and Gentiles. So he, separated, he broke down that dividing wall in the hostility by reconciling every human being that's made in the image of God. If they're going to be reconciled to God, it comes through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 14 and following, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In Isaiah, we see that a day is coming in which the people of God would not be related by their racial stock, but they'd be a new race of people from all the races a new people from all the peoples, a day in which all the races and peoples will come together under one roof. In Ephesians, we see that the day that Isaiah prophesied has dawned in Jesus Christ as kinds and families and races and nations are now bound together, not by the blood that runs through their veins, but by the blood that was shed for them upon the cross. Not by their racial stock, but by a redemptive sacrifice offered in their place. And in Peter, we see that this new people is the church of Jesus Christ. 
these living stones. Read further up in 1 Peter chapter 2, these living stones that are being constructed, all aligned and set with Christ as their cornerstone. And he says, you church are a chosen race. But what does that look like? Listen, let me tell you what it looks like. It looks like a place and a people in which there is the erosion of elitism. There is the erosion of elitism. Listen, I, I grew up in South Louisiana and my family has a, uh, a little, uh, we, we call it a camp. It's really a single wide trailer from the 1950s. Um, so don't, don't think lake house like you think around here. You know what I'm saying? Um, so it, it, it's definitely rustic, okay? Uh, but it's on a lake called Toledo Bend. And Toledo Bend was formed whenever they dammed up the Sabine River. That flows through East Texas and separates Louisiana and Texas from each other. And when before they dammed up that, that massive reservoir, you know, it's like 180,000 acres, surface acres, massive 60 miles north to south and about two to three miles wide at its widest point. But before they dammed up that river, right, that river would swell out of its banks annually, like a lot of rivers do whenever we get lots of rain. And as it swelled out of its banks, it began to cut into some of the surrounding landscape, the hills. And so there are sections of that reservoir now where you see where the old river channel emerged from its banks and began to cut into the surrounding hills. And as it did, it eroded away some of the sediment that was there and it formed these big massive bluffs, right? These big tall bluffs. What that, what that did was that, that, that swelling water, raging water coming down the river is that it reformed the landscape. That's what it did. It made it look different than the hills that were surrounding it. And listen, church, in a chosen race kind of church, there is an erosion that takes place of all forms of elitism. And it forms a new landscape in the church. Now, what is elitism? Elitism is the belief or attitude that individuals from an elite or a select group of people with a certain ancestry or high intellect or wealth or special skills or experiences, they're more likely to be constructive to the formation of society. Therefore, they should have greater influence and greater authority. Right? And elitism, right, believing that there's a, a certain choice type of person, right, it can wreck a church. And yet, if we understand what it means to be a chosen race, we see that this begins to erode gradually, right? And let me see if I can make it plain for you, okay? So the USDA, right, they grade different types of beef that are harvested from cattle on an annual basis. Now, listen, I know it's not in vogue these days to talk about killing cows and eating the meat and all those kinds of things, right? But I love a good steak. I do, I do. I love... I love seasoning it, throwing it on the grill, cooking it to perfection where when you slice into that thing, right, you open it up and it's got just a little, I mean, just a little bit of red still there, man. I, I, I love a good steak, a good kind of medium, rare to medium, okay? I love cutting into that thing and seeing the juices just come out and it just kind of melts in your mouth so tender, okay? But the USDA, they grade categories of beef. Right, you got on the lowest end you have select beef. Okay? Select beef is usually relatively lean and it's relatively it can get 
tough really quickly and it doesn't have much flavor because there's not a lot of marbling in the meat. Then you have choice beef, okay? And the choice beef has a little bit more marbling, a little bit more flavor, it has a little bit more tenderness to it whenever it's prepared. And then on the top end, you've got prime beef, okay? I mean, the, the, the choicest of all the cuts of beef. So it's got more marbling and more flavor, and it's more tender as it's prepared, okay? Now, some of you are like, man, i got to go eat right now, okay? Some of you are disgusted even by the conversation about beef. But listen, regardless of where you fall in that, in that category, let me, let me see if I can break it down for you. Listen, All right, there's those three categories. And while most Western, modern people don't see themselves, they don't see themselves as prime, right? A prime cut of humanity. They also don't see themselves as a select cut of humanity. They probably see themselves somewhere in the middle as a choice cut of humanity. Right? There are certain things about me that make me special. And yet, when we look at the word that modifies race in the text, Peter says, you are not a choice race, but a chosen one. A chosen one. It's the same thing that he says about Israel in the Old Testament in places like Deuteronomy. Chapter 7, God tells Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, the consistent testimony of the Bible is that we are not a part of this chosen race because we were choice people. But because God set His love upon us. He says in Deuteronomy, it's not because you are more number, numerous. In other words, I didn't choose you, Israel, right, to, to kind of uh, uh, elevate my stock among the nations because you were really impressive. He says, in fact, you were the fewest people, numbers of people on the face of the earth, and I chose you to elevate you so that I would be seen for who I am working through what everyone else would have dismissed. That's what it means to be chosen. Not that there was anything special about me or anything special about you that God said, i got to get that one on my team. But rather, He loved us. Even when there was nothing impressive about us. Set His affection upon us. Drew us to Himself. That, church, is love. That's what it means to be chosen. A chosen race, not a choice one. So let's get real practical this morning. How do you know that you actually get this, right? right? Because it's one thing to affirm something intellectually. It's, another some, it's something else to actually practice it at times relationally and practically. Let me give you several ways. One of the ways that you know you get this is because your preferences don't calcify into principles or manifest themselves in prejudices. 
Right? Let me say that again. Your preferences don't calcify into principles or manifest themselves into prejudices. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We all have cultural preferences, don't we? Right? We all like the way, th- we like to have things the way we like it. Okay? Like my steak. Right? We all have cultural preferences. And there's nothing wrong with preferring one thing over another. The problem comes when those preferences that we have culturally calcify. Right? Cal- you know what the process of calcification is? See, most of the calcium that you take into your body, right, whether it comes through your diet or it comes through supplements, most of that calcium is absorbed by your bones and by your teeth, those areas of your body that need to be hardened. Okay? Those areas of your body that you I need to chew that steak up, okay? Those that, that creates density in your bones to keep them from being brittle and breaking easily. And yet, however, excess calcium, right, the stuff that your bones and your teeth don't need, usually gets absorbed in your bloodstream and you pass it out when you go to the restroom. Could have said something else, but it's... So it's normal, and it's normal for a certain amount of calcium, right, to to compile or pile up in certain parts of your body, certain tissues of your body. But calcification becomes a problem when its location, shape, or size begins to interfere with the functions of your organs, right, so that it can block blood vessels in the heart or the brain or in the kidneys. For example, listen, with, with age sometimes comes the calcification of, my, of your mitral valve and your aortic valve of your heart. They can thicken and they can begin to calcify and get more rigid so that they're not as efficient at actually pumping the life-giving nutrients that your body needs throughout your systems. And over the course of time, your heart can lose its efficiency and its ability to be life-giving. And what that does is it ends up weakening the body. And listen, there are times that what happens in the human body happens in church bodies as things that our cultural preferences calcify into principles. For instance, for instance, when the types of structures or practices or events or activities that were helpful at one size of a church, right, whenever they calcify into sacred statutes that cannot be addressed, changed, challenged, rethought in, as the church grows or, sh- or shifts in the culture, okay? when those things become sacred structures, there's a chance that the heart of that church has begun to calcify. It's no longer life-giving because we prefer to have things this way. We prefer to have these events. We prefer to have these activities. We prefer to have this style. But as the the community that we're called to engage changes around us, if we're not able, not to change our doctrine, but to change the way that we engage them, then what happens is a calcification of the heart of a church, and it's no longer life-giving and engaging. The people that God has called it to reach. Cultural preferences at times. In addition, types of songs that are sung in the church can calcify and we sing only expressive songs or we sing only instructive songs. We sing only songs that have a great deal of repetition and are highly emotive, right? And it's like a concert every Sunday morning. Or we only sing songs that are very reflective, okay? 
if, there, if, if, there's, a, if there, there's, there's, there's room for both within the life of the church, simple choruses and more dense and wordy hymns. Because when those things calcify, when they calcify, what we end up doing sometimes is missing out on beautiful, beautiful songs that we deem either to be too sophisticated or we deem to be too simple. There's cultural preferences that can calcify. And while there's nothing wrong with cultural preferences, listen, when they calcify into principles, they, they can begin to restrict the life-giving nature of God's people as a chosen race. And particularly whenever they turn into cultural prejudices. Cultural prejudices which have no place in a chosen race kind of church. See, a prejudice is a feeling towards a person based upon that person's group membership or tribal behavior. It's unfavorable feeling toward people because of their political affiliation, their gender, their values, their class, their age, their disabilities perhaps, or their ethnicity or their language or their nationality or their physical appearance and their beauty, right? their occupation or education, right? even the sports teams that they cheer for. Right, or any other personal characteristics. And see, that's one of the effects of sin in our lives. Is at times, those things which started as preferences, and they might have gotten calcified into principles, they can turn into prejudices and make us feel superior to and suspicious of people who don't share the same principles. And this is one of the reasons that you see churches that have historically been located in one area, serving a community, they look around and the community around them has changed, right? It's gone from a predominantly white, right, suburban, middle class community now to a predominantly minority community. And the church says, all we know to do is to sell our property and move further out where we can reach people who look like us rather than reimagining what the church could look like with the people that God is bringing to her doorstep. Because preferences have calcified into principles which ultimately turned into prejudices. Now, I've got to keep moving. Another way that you know you, don't, you get this is because you understand that truth, listen church, it is transcultural. It is transcultural. And what that means is this. It means that the truth is not the exclusive possession of any single culture or group or people. Here's what this means. Okay? Right? Uh-oh. Here's what this means. It means that you can learn theology from black folk, and it means you can learn about race from white folk. It means both of those things. It means that Christians in the Hispanic community have much to teach us about what it looks like to live in community with others. Where we're interdependent and woven together. It means that Christians from Eastern cultures can teach us something about honoring those who have come before us. Because truth is not isolated to any one given culture, but it's transcultural. You don't need to be Asian or black or white or Hispanic to understand what the Bible teaches. Because it's transcultural. 
The final way you know that you get this whole idea of being a chosen race is because you don't see ministry and mentorship as a one-way street. Right? I know some of you don't know anything about this, but there was a day before you had GPSs in your car, okay? Or GPS on your phone. And at times, right, when you were in a city unfamiliar to you, particularly in the urban part of that city, you would be lost and turned around because there's one-way streets running, crossing, dissecting each other all over the place. And there was no Google Maps to tell you in 200 feet, turn right, right? Your watch didn't constantly beep at you, right, or buzz at you before you needed to make your next turn, right? Because on a one-way street, traffic moves in one direction, Right? It moves either north or it moves south. It moves east or it moves west. It doesn't move the other direction. But in a chosen race kind of church, ministry and mentorship is a two-way street. See, not all ministry and mentorship moves from those who are skilled and experienced to those who are unskilled and unexperienced. There are times where that happens, but listen, sometimes those who are skilled and experienced are able, if they're willing, to open themselves up to learning just as much from those who don't have the same skills that they do and have not had the same experiences that they've had. It's a two-way street. Listen, Russell Moore in his book Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, said it this way. He said, what if our churches weren't divided up by the same economic and racial and political and generational categories that would bind us together even if Jesus were not alive? There's a lot in that statement right there. What would it mean in your church if a minimum wage janitor were mentoring the multimillionaire executive of the restaurant where he cleans toilets because the janitor has the spiritual wisdom his boss needs? It would look awfully strange, but it would look no stranger than a crucified Nazarene governing the universe. See, if we really, really embrace this identity as a chosen race, the ministry would flow both ways. From young couples to single mothers and from single mothers to young couples. It would flow from those in their 20s and 30s to those in their 40s and 50s and from those in their 40s and 50s to those in their 20s and 30s. It would flow both ways from those who are recovering addicts to those who've never had a sip of alcohol in their life and from those who've never experienced what it's like to be addicted down to those who have. It would move both directions, church. And you know what that is? That's the erosion of elitism. A chosen race. A chosen race. The second thing that Peter says here about our identity as the church is that not only are we are a chosen race, but we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now, the language here in Peter is very similar to the language of Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where God says to Israel through Moses, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Now look, in Exodus 19, God says, not that Israel will be a kingdom with priests, though they were. Right? They had priests. Right? Priests who made offerings in the temple and priests who, uh, who, 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 who governed the, the, the different religious feasts and days and festivals. 
He doesn't say you're going to have to be a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests. In other words, everyone who makes up the kingdom would function in some capacity as a priest. So let's be clear. Peter's not talking here about a particular office within the church. It's not what he's talking about. As if there are some who are a part of the priesthood and others who are not. No, what Peter is saying is that everyone who has been united to Christ by faith and experienced the grace of God in their lives, he says everyone is a part of that priesthood. Everyone. So what does this mean? I'll give you two things this morning, and then I'm, I'll be out your way, okay? First one is this. Is that we share the dignity of royalty. We share the dignity of royalty. He says you're a royal priesthood. Now, one of the major themes that runs through the pages of the Bible is the kingship of God, or the kingship of Jesus. You see it in Isaiah 9 when it's predicted there's a child who will be born, a son who will be given. The government will rest upon his shoulders, right? Of the increase of his government and his peace, there would be no end. He would sit upon the throne of his father David. Right? So you see this idea that there's one who is coming who is the ruler of all things. You see it celebrated in places and praised in places in the New Testament like Colossians 1. We looked at a few weeks ago in which the supremacy and preeminency, preeminency of Jesus is held high. That there is no one above Him. There's no one even beside Him. Everyone is beneath Him. You see it as well when you turn to the end of the book in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer in other words Jesus was is and will be king over all creation and being a citizen of his kingdom being a part of his church means that we not only submit to his authority which we do but we also share in his dignity his dignity as royalty now listen there is a fascination within our culture, Stanley mentioned it a few weeks ago in corporate prayer, with royal families, right? Fascination with royal families, right? I, I wonder if in America the reason there's such a fascination with royal families is because we don't have anything like that, really, right? Okay? But there's a fascination with royal families. In fact, in, on April 29, 2011, the world seemingly came to a stop for a wedding that took place in Westminster Abbey there in London, England, between a British prince and an English woman, it was declared a national holiday and millions tuned in to watch the affair, right? There's whole blogs written on the dresses and the jewelry and the cake and the ingredients to the cake. And every, like every detail has been chronicled when it comes to that particular wedding, right? Between this British prince and an English woman. Because this English woman, Kate Middleton, though she was not born into royalty, her union with one who was royal brought her into royalty and made her the Duchess of Cambridge because she married a man who was a prince. So she became royalty. And I wonder if one of the reasons we are so fascinated by royal families is because we all know deep down somewhere that humanity was made for that. And yet, it was lost in the garden. See, in Adam, we lost that dignity of royalty, but in Christ, it is restored and renewed. 
In Romans chapter 8, we're told this in verses 15 and following, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And listen, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We're fellow heirs with the King of all creation. In other words, what is coming to Him through our union with Him is coming to us. That's why in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Church, we share the dignity of royalty. And yet for so many Christians, even after their conversion, they continue to live with a peasantry, pauper mindset. Rather than seeing themselves through the lens of their union with Christ. Listen, let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. You know the Pevensey children in C.S. Lewis's uh, series, The Chronicles of Narnia, particularly that fir- one of the first books in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Before those four children stumbled through the fur coats and into this snow-laden pine forest, before they made their way into Narnia, they were helpless and to some degree hopeless little kids. Right? The war is broken out. Their parents, one off at war, the mom ships them off into the country so they'd be safe. Right? They're displaced from their families. They're helpless. And yet when they stumble through that wardrobe, they find themselves in this crazy new world where animals are talking to them. Right? But yet even then, they still don't know who they are. They don't know who they are as they meet the beavers. They don't know who they are as the white witch tempts Edmund. They don't know who they are as they're racing across the frozen tundra. They don't know who they are until they meet Aslan. And when they meet Aslan, something changes to them. So that by the end of the story, listen to what Aslan says about the four children. He says, To the glistening eastern sea I give you Queen Lucy the Valiant. To the great western wood King Edmund the Just. To the radiant southern sun Queen Susan the Gentle. And to the clear northern skies I give you King Peter the Magnificent. Once a king or queen of Narnia, always a king or queen of Narnia. Church, because of your union with Christ, if you are in Him by faith, you are not peasants, you are not paupers, but you are princes and princesses, kings and queens, because you share in the dignity of royalty. Think about the impact of that reality on the audience that first read it. See, in Peter's day, the church was marginalized, persecuted, pushed to the fringes of society. In Peter's day, the church right, had no political sway. In Peter's day, the church had no voice in shaping the culture. In the church in Peter's day, 
was, by many, was viewed as a, another Jewish cult. And yet, Peter says to the church in his day, in a culture where Christians were cut off from their families whenever they were converted to Christianity, where they were stripped of their security, their homes perhaps were plundered, whatever, they were pushed to the margins of society. In other words, despite all the evidence to the contrary, Peter says, everything else that you see around you says something different to you than what you are. And Peter says, you're royalty. United to Christ. And consider its impact not only on that first century church, but on the 21st century church, because it is undeniable that the direction of Western culture is moving back in that direction. And yet even to the church today, God says, you're a princess. You're princesses. You're kings and queens. You share in the dignity of royalty despite all the evidence to the contrary. Consider its impact on those as well who've been historically marginalized even in our nation. I love the way Tony Evans works this out in his book, Oneness Embraced. Listen to what he says. He says, I grew up just a few hours away from our nation's liberty bell. That so proudly proclaimed liberty unto all. Yet when I would go to a fast food restaurant, I was denied the freedom to eat in a public dining room because I was black. The restaurant was pleased to take my money at the takeout window, but eating in was definitely out. Though I didn't fully understand it at the time as a child. The contradiction between proclaiming liberty while simultaneously denying it sought to shape my mind. But thank God for my father who knew what I was facing and who made an effort to counteract that lie. He said, son, you're a child of the king. If they don't want royal blood in their restaurant, then don't go in there. My earthly father pointed me to the truth of my heavenly father. As I grew older and looked more closely at the Bible and at Jesus, the Christ who had come, I discovered something awesome. I discovered that His love for me repositioned me above the class that I had been given by other men. Embracing this truth all of a sudden made what men thought and how men felt about me irrelevant because now I was seated with Christ in a very high place. He gave me recognition and significance and value, causing me to be fully proud of His creation in me so as not to allow others to denigrate me by how they define me. Or even to make me think more highly of myself than I ought to think. Because now I had truth as my reference point. Think about the impact of this truth. So you think this word royal doesn't matter. Tell it to the first century church. Tell that to the 21st century church. Tell that to Tony Evans and the rest of our black brothers and sisters. Tell that to the marginalized of any culture. Tell that to the disabled in our world. Tell that to the weak. Tell that to the poor. Tell them that the world doesn't matter. It matters. Because it redefines how we see ourselves regardless of where we're coming from. Not only do we share the dignity of royalty, church, but we also share the responsibility of the priesthood. As a royal priest. The priesthood in the Old Testament, listen, it was put in place by God to mediate His relationship with His people. 
So mediators, if you're, if you're not familiar with that term, mediators are like basically representatives. They represent one group or party to another group or party, or one person to another person. So they are a go-between, essentially, representing one to another. And so the priests in the Old Testament represented the people of God before God. Right? So they mediated that relationship there. But the priests in the Old Testament, listen, they also... Right? At times would speak God's words to God's people. So there was a kind of two-way street. They were representing God before the people and God to the people. And yet, in Exodus 19, we're told that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. And here we're told the church is a royal priesthood. Part of what that means for you and I is this. It means that as a royal priesthood, those who share the dignity of royalty, we also share the responsibility of the priesthood. Now listen, there is only one high priest. Let me make that very clear. Okay? There's only one high priest. His name is Jesus. Read the book of Hebrews. Okay? Makes it very, very plain. There's only one. And yet, as the kingdom of priests in the Old Testament, Israel was to be a light to the nations. Show them the beauty and the glory of God. So also the church today ought to do the same because a priest in the Old Testament, they had access into the inner places to dwell with God. And a part of our sharing in that priesthood means that you and I have access to God. We have access to God. We saw saw at the end of Mark's Gospel just a few weeks ago, That the curtain was torn. The veil was ripped from top to bottom that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the glory of God dwelled on earth so that we as His people could go right in. All because of Jesus. We have access to God, but listen, church, another thing that the priests were in the Old Testament, they were accessible to people. They were accessible to people. See, the Old Testament priests... They had the names of the people inscribed upon the blessed breastplate that lay over their heart. As we'll see next week, because the people were God's treasured possession. So in Exodus 28, 15 to 29, we find this description of this breastpiece. The breastpiece was made from yarn and linen, and it appears to have been about as large as the average person's hand in height and weight. It contained four rows of three precious stones, each set within the fabric with gold filigree. And upon the stones was engraved the names of the twelve sons or the twelve tribes of Israel. The breast pieces to be attached to the ephod with gold chain and cords to secure it over the heart of the high priest so that it would never swing away. It would never be displaced from the priest's heart. In essence, listen, the people of Israel whom the priest represented were to be engraved over his heart. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? To think about how the people were ever on the heart of the priest. Ever on his heart. And with Jesus as our high priest, I want you to know, church, that you're ever on his. That you're ever on his. We are ever on the heart of our high priest. He's always accessible to us. Always. And because of that access, listen church, let me ask you a question. Do you avail yourself of the access that you have now to God? 
Do you go in in prayer and in worship and laying your life down before Him, not as if you're going to make a sacrifice of yourself so that you could be accepted by Him, but because there's already been a sacrifice that's been made that's made you acceptable in His sight. And so you want to lay everything that you have and everything that you are down at His feet and say, use me, use all of me to your glory. That you go in. And then you come out to be accessible to people. To engage people where they are. Listen, I, I wonder how often we as God's people find ourselves in a position kind of like, I, I know some of us remember the old days before cell phones, right? Right? Before visual voicemail on your iPhone, Okay? Before any kind of voicemail on your cell phone. Whenever at home, you had a home phone and an answering machine. Remember those tapes, right? And they went from tapes to being digital. But regardless, whenever somebody called your home phone and you were home and you wanted to screen your calls, what would you do? You let the machine pick up. Right, the machine would pick up and say, I'm so I'm sorry, right? So and so is not home, but if you'll leave a message, they'll return after the beep, and then it'll go beep, and then somebody would start talking. And then you made at that moment you decided, do I want to talk to them or do I not want to talk to them? Right? So you would screen your calls. But you know one of the beautiful things about our high priest Jesus? Is that he doesn't screen his calls. But I wonder how often we do with others. How others are not like we are. We screen them out of our lives. See, a chosen race kind of church means there's an erosion of elitism, and a royal priesthood kind of church means that there is equal dignity amongst all our brothers and sisters because we're all sons and daughters of a king. We're all princes and princesses, and we have access to God, and we make ourselves available and accessible to people. We're a royal priesthood. And if we do this, if we really embrace this identity, Peter says the reason you are who you are is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received God's mercy. He's, his desire in carving out a people for Himself is that we would declare His praises among the nations. And the world would see that within the church, partitions and walls that separate people outside the church have no place inside. It's a beautiful picture. And I hope and pray as we close that we would embrace that beauty. Let's pray. Father, today... We acknowledge that you are good, that you are gracious and kind. And you have demonstrated that through the person of your Son.
our cornerstone, the one to whom we as living stones are being aligned and upon whom we're being constructed. And as you build a temple for your dwelling by the Spirit, Father, you're building a chosen race, a people from all the peoples of the earth, and you're building a royal priesthood who would represent you before the nations. And invite others to share in this dignity of royalty as your sons and daughters by being united to your son in faith. Father, help us, both personally and corporately, to square every practice, every principle to Christ as our cornerstone that we would run our lives individually and our churches in this land collectively all for the lines that He projects. That we would not allow preferences to calcify into principles or manifest themselves in prejudices. But Father, we would truly be a place where ministry flows both directions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.